Welcome to Creating Synergy, where we explore what it takes to transform. We are powered by Synergy IQ. Our mission is to help leaders create world-class businesses where people are safe, valued, inspired, and fulfilled. We can only do this with our amazing community. So thank you for listening. Hey there, Synergizers, and welcome back to another episode of the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, and today we have a really great and humble gentleman by the name of Mr. Andy Keogh on the show. So Andy grew up in Sydney and always had a dream to serve his country. After finishing high school, he decided to join the Royal Australian Navy, where he served for two decades and built an illustrious career, which included the commanding of two Colin-class submarines an exchange with the U.S. Navy Submarine Force in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. In 2006, he was awarded the Conspicuous Service Cross Award for leadership in a recent deployment. In 2007, Andy decided to try his hand at corporate life, where today he finds himself as the Managing Director of Defence and Security Company Saab Australia. He previously held roles as Chief Executive of Defence SA and many other senior management roles in ASC. Further to his directorship duties at Saab, Andy is an adjunct professor with the University of South Australia, chair of the Australian Industry Group Defence Council, co-chair of the University of Adelaide Defence Advisory Board, and a board member of the Training and Skills Commission, and a board member of SACE. In this episode, Andy was kind enough to share his journey and experiences of his career, from joining the Navy, to experience of being a submarine commander, to the transition into corporate life. We discussed the culture of the Navy, his thoughts on leadership, and how important it is to have the ability to be able to self-reflect. It's a podcast for the ages and one that I'm sure you enjoy. We'd love your support, so feel free to hit the subscribe button and check us out on synergyiq.com.au and SynergyIQ on all social media outlets. Cheers. Welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, your host, and today we have a great man, Andy Keogh, CEO of Saab. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Daniel. Great to be here. A little bit nervous about the podcast? No. All good. good. (laughs) good. Um, We'll jump straight into it, Andy. You have a, a decorated career in the Defence Force and uh, the, in, in particular Navy and submarines. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us about your decision as a young Andy Keogh to dive straight into the Defence Force and mm-hmm. what made you sort of take that path with your life? Yep. So um, like most kids coming out of school, I didn't really have much of an idea about what I was going to do. I'd applied for a few university courses here and there, but even going to university, I wasn't really sure what you really did at university other than study. So um, with that sort of ambiguity around, I had an interest in, I suppose, defence and defence forces just from a a natural sort of inclination. Mm -hmm. I watched movies about Battle of Britain movies when I was very young and things like that and had a bit of interest in it. And so uh, growing up, um, I thought that might be a path but wasn't really that convinced or set one way or the other. And then um, just towards the end, about uh, I was about halfway through year uh, 12, my uh, mother happened to uh, yell over the fence to the next door neighbour and say, oh, yes, um, Andy's off to the, the, the uh, defence force. He's going to join the army and go to Duntroon. And, of course, the neighbour next door who happened to be in the Navy okay. said, we can't have him do that. <laughs> I'll have to take him down to a Navy base and show him what we do in the Navy. And so, uh, you know, he went out of his way, took me down to a base in, uh, in Sydney, walked around there for the day, 
went out in the middle of the harbour, went one of the diving courses out there. And from that, you know, I got a different insight in, into the Navy. Um, and from that changed my sort of thoughts or ideas around going into Defence Force and predominantly Army because I'd been in Army cadets at school, so that was a logical connection. Mm-hmm. Um, changed over the Navy, which I had no interest in prior to that. Um, and there it started. So what was the... What was the emotion connected to wanting to join though? Like you obviously knew the risks that could eventuate should ever, you know, mm. should we ever go to war or anything mm. like that. So what was the, uh, what was that emotion that sort of connected you to that decision? Well, I think like most 17, 18 year old boys, you're not really doing a huge amount of detail <laughs> processing at that stage. No, no. Uh, you've got some pretty simple sort of criteria about <laughs> sport yeah. and trying to avoid academics yeah. or get yourself across as, uh, as best you can. Yeah. Good so, way to get out of home as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it was really that idea. And, and particularly, you know, going off and going into the Navy and going and doing your, your uh, university course through there, you, you spent the first three years. You already had a job, you're going to get a degree and straight after that you had a career to go into. And, of course, Navy, like many organisations, very large and therefore you can move across. You can be a helicopter pilot, a diver, you can drive a ship, a submarine, hydrographic vessels. There's a whole range of course uh, areas you can go into, which allows someone like myself who doesn't have a set fixed view of what I want to do, it allowed me that flexibility as I found to be able to go and select a career path that matched with my interests. So what, what was that interest? Where did you find yourself in what, what area? Well, I think it evolved with time. And, and when I first went in, just like many, you, you do your degree and just getting the degree out of the way is the first thing. Mm. I, I can say with, with some you know, irony these days, predominantly because I have so much to do with the education sector, that uh, it wasn't the first and highest priority for me getting yeah. through. Um, going through university was about... in my perspective is about getting a piece of paper yep. because my real job started after I left university. So mm-hmm. um, so I got through that, enjoyed it, played as much sport as I could, had a great time. Originally it was in uh, Jarvis Bay on the south coast and yep. so uh, it was idyllic. You're there with a whole group of other um, kids running around, forming good uh, friendships. Um, you know, one weekend every uh, month you'd be on the base doing duty over that weekend and you'd be taking the power boats out and driving them around Jarvis Bay or taking sailing boats out or doing jobs around the place. And, of course, every weekend you're playing sports. So it's a pretty good, um, it's a pretty good lifestyle pretty to grow good up. Deal. Yeah. So as a civilian, excuse the ignorance, but what was your job every day? Like what, yep. what did you have to do in that sense? So Naval College first year was like any first year of a military organisation. It was yep. pretty tough. You're waking up sort of and getting up. Eight, uh, six o'clock in the morning, you're on the parade ground out there in your in your PT gear, ready to go out and do some fitness. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you'd be running or up and down the beach or something, which sounds great. But yep. um, you yeah, know, in the freezing tough. in the freezing dead of winter and when it's raining, it doesn't sound like the most exciting things, mm-hmm. uh, even reflection. <laughs> but um, you'd do that, and then you'd come back, you'd change, breakfast, off university courses for the course of the day, um, and then after that, you'd be cleaning up things, getting ready, study, dinner, rounds after dinner. So you'd be inspected after dinner for your room to make sure it's clean, finish more study, go to bed, wake up, repeat, do it again. So very sort of fixed in the way it is. But it was, you know, things you were doing around there. And, again, the people you were 
connecting with the, the bonds you are growing, many of whom I still keep in contact with today, is fantastic. Do you think those disciplines that you learn every single day, you know, from getting up and making your bed in the morning to, the, you know, the way you behave and act with, with everyone, mm -hmm. yeah, certain individuals, uh, is that something that's carried through your life? I think there's many aspects of it you take through in your life. Obviously with some that discipline resonates better than others and some people are not naturally disciplined or ordered in their thinking or ordered in the way they do. Mm. So they tend to, once they come out of that very strict controlled structure, sort of default closer to back to what they were originally, other people take it up and embrace it and sort of use it the rest of life. I think I'm somewhere in between. I um, have a little bit of routine and like routine and structure but not necessarily all bound by it. But normally just little things like meetings, if a meeting starts at 8 o'clock or 10 o'clock, you... you Usually there a couple of minutes before and if you're running late, you have a sense of discomfort, a yeah. natural sense of <laughs> I should be there on time yeah. or at least a little bit early. So some of those things were. Is that because you feel like you're letting someone down or is that because you're bound by time? I think it's been bound by time mm -hmm. and things start on time and that's the structure and order you yeah. get about and without that you kind of get into this things get a bit sloppy. And, yeah. of course, in some businesses, I know in uh, business that's quite – Routine, you walk in and people are still walking in two or three or five minutes after the start. Mm. Um, but when you've got a, as I later did, went into to Navy and into submarines, um, when you've got a submarine there and things have to happen on time and you want things to be precise and crisp, then it's got to, um, it's got to start with some of those basic philosophies. Absolutely. So if a young teenager came up to you today in the same sort of scenario, mm. didn't really know what they want to do with their life, comes to you for advice. Would it be your advice to go off like your neighbour did to you and go off and, and show them the ropes around what they could be involved in? So I've done it a few times, not necessarily to show people around, but to talk to them about mm. what the career is. Ultimately, it comes down to their choice um, and their decision. And I think in talking to people, what you've got to be really careful about is you tend to imprint your sense of this was right for me, therefore mm. it... It's right for a whole range of other people. In many cases, it's not. But I certainly benefit a lot and enjoyed a lot. And I think if people can understand, particularly some of those paradigms about the military being this very, um, you know, strict and controlled and, uh, you know, orders left, right and centre, you can break some of those paradigms down to say, actually, no, it's pretty reasonable and as society has changed, it has changed as well. Um, then that helps people make a more rational base the decision but certainly for my time my growing up in the 22 years I had in the Navy uh, it was fascinating it was fantastic and every couple of years you're moving jobs so you've still got the same employer uh, but you're moving around and you never um, you never get bored that's for sure <laughs> absolutely Do you, you, we've, like, there's a lot of books going around at the moment Navy SEALs SAS mm. the whole sort of scoop and they go through mm. hell weekend did you ever embark on anything like that where you had to go through i mean obviously the seals is, is a different and the sas yeah. is a different kettle of fish altogether but did you ever have to go through that really tough training process so i think there's a few gates that people go through of varying heights um and, and certainly the seal course and sas um, courses are held up on on very high um, esteem but I think even just coming into the military, it's a, it's a significant change mm. to many people, to their lifestyle. And so uh, for many that is as challenging as what SEAL course is yeah. because by the time they're going on a SEAL course or going on to the SAS course, they've actually been in the military 
uh, for a period of time. They've got all some of the basic skills and understandings. They've got networks and connections. They understand it and they can train for it. Mm. Um, so the shock and the jolt to them whilst it's significant, um, it's also, you know, many people just coming off the street, there's a decent sort of jolt or change to them as well just by the way things are done differently to what they're used to. Yeah. I suppose for me um, probably the biggest hurdle was doing the submarine command course that was called the Perisher. Um, principally called the perish because most people perish on it. <laughs> um, and uh, and that's right at the end of your submarine career. So you've gone through an entire career, you're qualified in submarines, you've done a number of jobs. You could have spent somewhere between 10, 15 years on submarines as a, as a submarine officer. And then this is the final course you have to pass in order to command a submarine. And so it's uh, six months over in the Netherlands uh, on the Dutch submarines uh, doing some fairly intensive work uh, over there. And, and I suppose like many things, uh, it's the task is a challenge and it's very demanding of the course, um, but it's actually the consequences of your failing that probably puts most pressure mm -hmm. on people. And, and in that case, my course, we had six that started, uh, myself and uh, a Brazilian passed, so there was two that passed out of the six. Um, and none of those others will go back to sea. Again, in a submarine, there's always the tradition that you know, when you fail perisher, that's it. Um, your yeah. career is over. Now, there have been people who have gone back and, and done other jobs on a submarine, like an XO again, they've gone yeah. back because there's been shortages or whatever. But generally, that was the tradition that once you're finished in submarines, you fail that course, that's it. And so everything you've worked for to get in command has gone. All the people you've gone to sea with for the last 10 or 15 years, they're no longer a key part of your life in many cases. So that puts an enormous pressure on people. Mm. Um, and as I said, there are sometimes there during that course, really intense, particularly the sea phases where you start at about four o'clock in the morning, you're running operations, you might be practicing laying mines in a certain area or taking photograph of some you know, unique coastal installation. It's very shallow water throughout, so it's not like you can you know, seek the protection of the depth mm. uh, in many cases. So you tend to be quite a, uh, a, a, a you know, challenging environment throughout that and you've got pressure being put on you. If there's not pressure on you, they'll stimulate pressure on you through doing a whole range of other things. So, And that's day in, day out. You're out there for weeks on end sort of doing that work. So it's, um, that's probably the, the toughest jump. It, it almost sounds a little bit counterproductive to me in the sense that if you spend 15 years getting to the point where you can get on the perisher only to potentially not get through and all that all those years and money spent to get yeah. you to that point yeah. what, what, so what is the outcome for those who don't get through oh they generally go off and do other other jobs in the navy okay. generally uh, they might go out and command a patrol boat for example or one of the support ships okay um oh, so it's, they it's can, not all lost it's no no they don't have to leave it's not as if they're forced out of the navy yeah. they, there's plenty of other career opportunities but it's unusual to be changing your career specialization sort of 15 odd years into your career mm. to be then jumping into something else. But um, these days they're much better with preparing people for it. So the pass rate is usually a bit higher, but um, it's still nonetheless a challenging uh, challenging course. And, a, and, and ultimately, yes, there's a waste um, in terms of all that, that experience a person's had, but equally um, the course is designed to make sure that the people who get in command of a submarine have got some core fundamental skill sets that they can lean on when when things get tough. Yeah, brilliant. Do you, 
so submarines are most I would say most Australians know that you know we're building submarines and yep. we're doing a whole heap with the submarines at the moment and, and many of the biz, many defense businesses are working on them as we speak but the idea of the submarines I believe quite foreign to Australians still in the sense of what they actually do and we, we are obviously surrounded by ocean so there is an element of understanding they do protect us but can you explain to us what you when you uh, get deployed to go what is the process what is your everyday yep. command I suppose if you can share that information. yeah sure so so perhaps to talk about the role of the submarines first mm -hmm. um and, um, you know, I could reflect on modern history, but actually if you look back into the earlier days of the submarines, the first submarines were ordered in about 1909. They turned up in 1914, just in the outbreak of the First World War. Um, they arrived into Sydney in about May, and by September the two submarines had been deployed to Papua New Guinea uh, along with an Australian task group to go and look for some German ships that they believed were operating in that, that area at the time because they'd set up some wireless stations, et cetera, up in that area. So I suppose the first lesson um, an observation of submarines is that we don't use them in defence. It's not like they sit in Sydney Harbour and defend the mm -hmm. harbour. Mm -hmm. We've always used them to deploy at range. Um, one of those vessels was lost um, in, on that operation, um, AE-1, that's just been found recently. Uh, the second vessel came back to uh, Sydney um, and it prepared itself and then early in 1915 it deployed up to, uh, up to um, the Dardanelles and as the Anzacs were landing on one side of the Gallipoli Peninsula the very, that very morning the submarine A2 was making its way in through the strait of, into the Sea of Mamora and, and there it goes and demonstrated the, the other advantage of a submarine was that um, its role was to interdict the Turkish supply of communications, the water trade that was coming in to reinforce the troops. And so it very quickly uh, made its presence known. It attacked a few ships, um, went and fired a few shells at things. And, and, of course, that very quickly stopped a lot of the reinforcements coming in behind the Gallipoli Peninsula. And so suddenly everything, rather than going by sea, which would have been relatively quick, had to go over land by cart. Mm -hmm. So it certainly impacted on the supply lines of the Turks during that campaign. And, and that's a good example about submarines working at long range. Just the presence of the submarine is enough to shape the enemy's decision-making to make them do something different mm. to what they would normally do if that submarine threat wasn't there. So I think from the history you can see what the submarines have done. I think to perhaps best characterise submarines, despite satellites which are often transitory despite aircraft drones and everything else that have endurance period that are measured in hours um, and of course rarely are they getting into days of endurance uh, even with un unpiloted aircraft um, a submarine literally sits out there for weeks mm. and for weeks it can sit in one area it can see exactly what's going on it can record everything and above and below the water um, and it forms an understanding of what's going on in that area, what's normal, and therefore when things happen that are different, it might be military activity, it might be something going on, it can quite easily see that and have a broader context for what's happening um, and therefore can make some fairly good decisions and it can act on those decisions um, if, if called upon. So the best way I characterise it, they are our eyes and ears mm. that go a long distance, undetected from home, 
to see what's happening in our backyard so that we're not surprised uh, mm. in a time of crisis. So obviously very valuable. <laughs> then, um, what, so what's it like inside? Like when you're deployed, how long are you in the depths of the water and what does it feel like to be in there? Is it, how, does it, how does your body react? You know, if you look at the, the space station, it, it has an adverse effect on the, on the human body because there's no gravity. Is the extra gravity underneath the ocean? Is that all, how does it all work? Yeah. So it's, it's a remarkably normal environment okay. in there. Um, so you get on board the submarine, there's fluorescent lighting in there and bright lighting these days, LED lighting inside mm. the submarines. Um, and those lights in many parts of the submarine stay on 24 hours a day, mm. seven days a week. Um, so it's relatively normal in terms of um, there's air conditioning running, so it's all controlled temperature most of the times. Yeah. Um, sometimes if you're doing certain operations, you'll shut down the air conditioning to be extra quiet mm -hmm. at certain occasions but mostly it's running, you're in a good environment, it's, it's relatively cool, about 21 degrees, and, um, and, and you get into a quickly establish a, a cycle or a routine. Um, most people are in watches, so they're usually six-hour watches, so you're six hours on watch, six hours off watch, and six hours on, so ones to sevens or sevens to ones, so mm -hmm. basically you're taking over in seven o'clock in the morning, you're in charge if you're a watch leader or if you're running the diesels or back in the engine room, you're in charge of that section or responsible for that job for the next six hours to one o'clock until the same person who you took over from then comes and takes over from you again. And so you just cycle through. And at each time on the ends of those watches, you're having you know, either lunch or breakfast or dinner um, as you come on and off watch. Um, and in between the rest of the time, so when you hand over your role and responsibility, there's about half an hour lost in doing that. Um, have something to eat, go to sleep for about four and a half hours, wake up, have something to eat, go back on watch, you work go. your watch and, and you roll through it like that. So the routine, you get very quickly into a, just a routine day in, day out doing that sort of work. And, and of course, that might sound a bit boring or um, not so exciting, but it's what you're doing at the time. So if you're out exercising with the fleet, uh, which Australian submarines do quite a lot, uh, preparing them in terms of how do they work with a submarine or terminally how do they go and find and, and attack a submarine, working their skills and coordination, mm -hmm. particularly when you've got air assets like helicopters and maritime patrol aircraft involved, there's a lot of coordination that has to go on to do that, a lot of practice needed to do it. So if you're doing that, you'll be going from one exercise that might last two or three hours. It might be a very basic structured exercise where you're sitting in a known position and the ship comes up to you and you sort of wave at them and they wave at you <laughs> and they turn on the sonar and they follow you around for a period of time and track you. And if they lose you, then you fire, you either put your masts up or you fire a smoke so they can actually see where the submarine is and they come back closer to you and they refind you and then they keep tracking you. That's a very basic, very structured serial just to get the ship, more so the operators who are on the ship uh, who are looking at the sensor data uh, to get them used to seeing what it's like being in contact with the submarine. You have everything from that um, through to extremely um, free play exercises where the ships are in a certain area, you've got to go and do a job, it might be... Uh, laying practice mines or, or simulating laying mines on Sydney Harbour or Port Kemble or something like that. Um, and there'll be a whole bunch of ships and aircraft out there 
trying to find you and they'll be, you know, understanding where you have to be at a certain time. But other than that, they've got to do their best to find you and likewise you've got to do your best to avoid them while still achieving your mission. So you go all the way through those very free play um, scenarios and, of course, they can be conducted day and night. So, so you're just rolling from one exercise to another to another and all the time through you're doing new things, different things, and there's a lot of safety structure around them to make sure the submarine's kept safe, the ship's mm. kept safe as well. And what do you do from a complacency point of view? If, if you say it can be boring, is there an yeah. opportunity for, it to, for people to become complacent if they're down there? Or? Oh, look, I think there's a, there's a time, certainly when you're deployed sometimes, um, you, you know, there's an old saying which is probably, there's an elements of truth to it, which is it's 99 percent of uh, sheer boredom and one percent of sheer terror um <laughs> but um you know you do get into a routine people get into a a routine or rhythm but um what you find is because of the training and the enormous amount of training you do just preparing the submarine to go mm. to sea as a part of what's known as the licensing process um you can get people who are effectively operating sort of in a fairly quiet state but if something changes um and it might be as simple as um you know the periscope watchkeeper, for example he might mutter something an expletive loud everyone in the control room will suddenly sit up and they'll be ready to launch it's as, as instantaneous as yeah, that wow. because the crew has been trained mm. to such a high level and that starts before the submarine goes to mm. sea you're doing Days and days of training in simulators, practicing your core drills. Um, you then go from the simulators to the submarine alongside the wharf, and you're practicing on that, simulating as if you were at sea, even though you're alongside a wharf. Uh, you then take the submarine and you drive it around on the surface, and you do drills whilst that. At the end of that, you get your license effectively, or you tick to dive the submarine. You go out, you dive the submarine, but you're still restricted in the depth of water you can operate. So it's not like you're going to go out in deep, deep water or into really busy shipping lanes and be challenged by lots of traffic. Mm. So that's quite a controlled way. You then do a whole series of exercises and work during that. And then once you've gone through a certain gate through that, you're then released out into unrestricted operations. That's just the safety side of it. <laughs> and then you go and practice all your operational work on top of that. And once you go through that, you then got the tick to be unrestricted operations, go and do exercise of the fleet, um, and if you're going to deploy on operations, then sometimes you've got more specific training on top of that to actually practice again. So it's an incredibly detailed um, process you go through and a way of safely controlling the release of the submarine and making sure that the crew, uh, many of whom, some of whom may changed over during the last maintenance period, all go back out there in maybe the same roles but on a different submarine or in new roles, they go out there and put through their paces and assessed to see as individuals but also as a team that it performs correctly. It's, a, it's brilliant. I love it. It's, it's um, an amazing world that I haven't even thought about half of those things that you've just mentioned mm. then, so that's it. From a personal point of view, you received the Conspicuous Service Cross, yep. which is awarded to members of the Australian Defence Force, and I'll quote, for outstanding devotion to the duty or outstanding achievement in the application of exceptional skills, judgment or dedication in a non-warlike situation. So you received one of those awards yep. in 2006. Yep. Firstly, congratulations. Thank you. Secondly, what 
what did you receive it for? Can you yeah. divulge? So, uh, so, um, so it was a deployment we did on um, HMA Sheen um, and um, in 2005 um, and it was a long deployment. It was a six-month deployment. We came out of, uh, we'd done all our workups, came out of Western Australia, up to Guam, up to Guam, out of, uh, uh, up to Japan and came out of Japan and, and uh, then ended up... Um, you know, Thailand after that, then um, Singapore, then home. So it was a long, long deployment. Uh, for one of those stretches, we had 55 days um, away from port. Um, and uh, so it was enormously complex and challenging. Um, it's often seen as cliche, but I have to say that um, the award itself um, is really recognition for what the crew did as much as anything else. Um, I'm the fortunate one who sits on, on as the commander of it and you get the recognition of it. Um, but it's certainly as much as the, the, the effort that a whole host of individuals put in during that time. Yeah, but you and, couldn't have done it without your team, right? So. No, absolutely. And, and, and some, of those, um, some of those people were, uh, you know, going through some incredibly difficult, challenging circumstances themselves. Um, um, one, for example, you know, his wife was pregnant due to have a, have a child whilst he was kind of on deployment. And so that would have been a significant um, challenge and a consider consideration for him. Uh, we actually gave him the, the choice to whether we wanted to post off the submarine before he left because of that significance. Um, and he was adamant he wanted to do it. I then double checked with his wife to make sure she was happy for him to go away and she was happy as well. So. Uh, but that certainly nonetheless would have been a really challenging time for him. Um, another one was a, a gentleman who'd, um, there, there was prior to uh, that in about 2003, we had a, uh, one of our submarines had a flood on board and uh, he was involved in that. He was on, on the submarine at the time and he was right in the area where the flood came in. And, yeah, so um, from someone who's claustrophobic, that is not <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, so he, he, he described it in quite... Uh, you know, quite animated detail about how he felt like he was just in a washing machine being thrown around. Yeah, that's that's how much water was coming in and that's how quickly it came in. But, um, you know, again, um, the safety procedures worked. The team responded. They, you know, there's one valve, there's one button on the submarine that's uh, called the shuttle hold valves button. And basically you hit that button and every valve going to the submarine instantaneously shuts, which is what they did. They put on speed and the submarine popped up to the surface. So... Dramatic as it was and extreme as it was because it was down at the deepest depth the submarine's going to, um, nonetheless they recovered and, and it's a part of the training, it's a part of the engineering that goes behind the design of the submarine, a range of factors. Um, but nonetheless this individual was at sea again mm. and he struggled for that period of time. Um, he found it really challenging. So, yeah, it was a, it was a challenging deployment. As I said, um, you know, we had about 50, 55 days underway. We did pop in and grab some fuel after about four days, so you could say 51 mm. from end to end. Um, and enormously challenging the work we were doing in those 51 days. It was a very um, flat-out sort of period. Um, and But it, nonetheless, extremely important work that we had to be done. So you obviously can't go into the details, but how, how do you feel... From a leadership perspective, mm -hmm. like you've quite literally got the hand, the lives of these people in your hands. How, how do you, or did you at that time, manage that and manage through those thought processes? 
Um, well, I think it's one of those things that you're just trained to do mm. and, and so the training kicks in and takes mm. over. Um, so I, I think you, it depends on How do you train for, for that though? Like what, what training do you go through? Well, the previous sort of 15 years yeah. getting to that point was probably um, probably the best leading. So it's just co- constant um, iteration and experience well, after just, experience? Just being put in under pressure mm. in difficult situations as an individual or as a team. Um, you know, as I said, hence the reasons they talk about perisher being so demanding, mm. you put through those paces. Um, so to come out the other side, command a submarine, and, and it's not to say that on day one you feel comfortable in it by any means. Yeah. You've got an enormous amount of learning as a, as a commander stepping into that type of role, just as a CEO has stepping in a new mm. role. Uh, you make mistakes. Um, I think with time, what I reflect on and changing, you know, reflecting back on that leadership style, which is very structured and very at times demanding um, circumstance, I think in the corporate world, um, in nearly all cases, you can afford to be a lot uh, more collaborative. You can certainly afford to be a lot more um, engaging and open with your people because um, it's a much easier environment to do that in. Um, and I think at the time also, particularly when you're so task-focused, um, you know, you operate like a machine sometimes. You just And, and people to a degree expect you to um, because in some cases when it's really a stressful situation, um, they do look for you uh, to make decisions and make things happen. Um, many cases are not like that. Many cases you have the ability to engage with people and ask and collaborate and and I, and I rarely, um, I think I rarely ever had to give an order. You just ask people and, of course, you're the commanding officer so it gets done, <laughs> right? Um, but you very rarely had to order anything to happen unless it was a formal order like a, a steering order to, to steer the submarine or what speed. But most of the days you're just asking people to do and 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 99.99% of the time people understand why it has to be done anyway. Mm. They, they get it, they understand it, they see the task. Most times they've done it already um, in advance of you even seeing it or notifying it. But, yeah, they're certainly, um, certainly extremely challenged. But the leadership side of it is, um, yeah, it is a challenge. And it's particularly one of the things they talk about in Perisher uh, the Perisher course, which is quite a, in some areas, dated philosophy. Um, but when you're doing all that training, um, the instructor that I had uh, would never give you any feedback. So you come through doing a two-hour session where you've been simulating laying mines or, you know, doing an operation. It's been stressful. You have ships around you. You've had all these things to deal with. Even if it's just in the simulator, it's stressful enough. And uh, at the end of it, uh, as a Dutchman, he'd sit there and he'd go, yeah, okay, finished, next. <laughs> and his point was, if you're going to go finish this course and command a submarine, no one's going to be sitting behind you critiquing you mm-hmm. um, on, on what work you do. No one's going to be giving you advice on what you could have done better or what you needed to improve on. As a commander, that's what you had to do yourself. It was your one primary job is to self-reflect mm. and to understand whether you were performing at the right level, you were doing the right things or if there weren't better ways of improving uh, what you were doing. And so that's one of those messages, again, which carries through. And it, and it applies in certain circumstances, in certain domains. Um, it's very focused at the work you do as a submarine commander to make sure you understand that the ultimate responsibility uh, rests with yourself. And so... 
that's why people get through generally tend to take those things in their stride they move on um, I think you also see the reflection I think with time of the stresses of the job as well I mean one time I come back from a long deployment my first submarine I picked up a, the submarine in Singapore we'd done a number of exercises and that's just around the time when uh, East Timor was bubbling away so we're into Darwin and you know caught up with the things around there and then we came home just before Christmas um, and um, I remember we had to get a submarine ready um, because we had to deploy next year to Hawaii so it was a long trip and those days it was one of the the longest trips that the Collins class submarines were going to be taking mm -hmm. from Sydney to Hawaii on a diesel submarine is about 20, 21 days. Um, and there's a lot of ocean in between there. So you want to make sure everything's going to work to get you across there uh, without any issues. So a fair bit of stress. And I, I remember coming home on the submarine, coming home from, from Singapore, I remember I was getting this little twitch in my eye and my, <laughs> my eyelid would flutter to the point where I'd sit there sometimes listening to the people and I'd have my hand over my eye because I felt it sort of this nerve twitching. Yeah. Anyway, I thought, oh, well, this is it. I obviously need glasses. You know, <laughs> my dad said when you get to sort of 40 or something, you need glasses. And I was about mid-30s at that stage. So I thought, oh, well, obviously that's it. So I went and saw an optometrist over the Christmas time, got booked in. He did all these tests, looked at my eyes, did all this sort of stuff. And he was uh, quite, he's probably in his early 60s and he just leans back and he goes, um, okay, so I've done all my tests and I've got my results. You know, so, so I need glasses too. And he goes, no. He goes, um, do you have any stress in your life at all? <laughs> and I said, no, oh, not really. We just got back from a three-month deployment. We've got a couple of weeks to turn the submarine around. We've got to get people through maintenance and through leave and this, get everyone together, new team, build them up, go through licensing, uh, fairly short hop, and then we're across to Hawaii. No, nothing more <laughs> than just the routine. <laughs> I said, why is that? What's that got to do with mine? He goes, well, actually, it's stress-related. Uh, I go, really? No. <laughs> So um, it's, it's just one of those indicators that, you know, that your body does at times yeah. take on huge amounts of stress. And, and it was helpful after that because having seen it and seen it in that context, I can go, ah, right, I've got to now think about how do I better manage stress mm. rather than pouring yourself into a job and pouring yourself into a task to the point where you start to see physiological effects or you start to have impacts. It's that ability to sort of pull yourself back from that edge and go, no, I need to take a break here whether I think I need it or not because I've got to balance these things out. Um, and in the long term, like most careers, you know, they're like a marathon. It's not a sprint. So, yeah. Well, it's a good point. If you go back to the Dutchman, for example, is yeah. telling you that the ultimate role is to manage yourself yeah. and be self-reflective. That's not yeah. only from a performance, it's also from a mental perspective as Correct. well understanding self and the stress that you're going through and all the and, and the signs and luckily for you the sign was a twitching eye and yep. it was something a bit more visible but for others it's not not yep. like that so it is something that we should always keep in the back of our minds mm. it's not only managing our performance but managing our mental health as yep. well so thank you for uh, bringing that up um in regards to going again the the dutchman and and the sort of the the, the directives and you said that at times um you know, you were very commanding in your approach. The culture of the Navy, is it one where, um, you know, people would would come to to work, I suppose, and, and say, 
that they love the culture here. Is that how it works or mm. how, does, how does it all wrap into an ecosystem? Yeah. So it's a bit hard to me talking about Navy. I can only reflect on I left in 2007, so 14 yeah. years ago. So um, the culture of Navy uh, that is today, and I'm not qualified to talk about mm -hmm. it, but certainly as an outsider looking in has, has changed um, dramatically from where I was there. Um, it's an enormously more – they really focus on the team and the team behaviours mm -hmm. um, and the team values as well. So um, – but certainly my time um, and, and again, I wasn't – submarines considered themselves to be, you know, the elite side of it, just like the Special Forces guys. When we took the Special Forces guys on the submarines, we'd look at them and they'd look at us and we'd be thankful that we're on the submarine in, in the nice relative comfort mm. and, and as we're – pushing them out the submarine in the middle of the night um, to jump on little boats or to swim ashore. Uh, we'd be quite um, happy to be inside our warm little dry shelter and, of course, they'd be quite happy to be leaving yeah. the, the very constricted space that, um, that they were previously in. Um, so the, the team and the leaderships depend on what area, but when you, you tend to get those more elite areas or those more high-performance areas, um, you do have, you know, these very tight bonds. And you have, and I think one of the points I, I reflect on in my career now in, in industry is that you, uh, in the Navy, you did a lot of training. Mm -hmm. And when you weren't training, you were actually executing. And when you finished executing, you'd be back to rest and then back out to training. And because of that, you have this, you know, extremely high level of alignment in your team. So as I said earlier on, you can have a team that's sitting in a control room that's kind of idling at 10 or 15% capacity because there's not much going on. It's all very mundane. We're just driving along. And, and literally within seconds, you can make one or two orders or one or two commands and suddenly you've got people up um, sitting on the edge ready to go. Now, you try to do that in the corporate world, right? <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not going to happen. It doesn't happen, right? <laughs> but but the, the, the analogy there is because you had such high alignment, you could afford to be very economical and at times it was designed exactly for that with your directions or your commentary because everyone knew what you were thinking and what you were talking about and what needed to be done. It's very task-focused. In, in the corporate world, often when you get a management team, one of the most interesting conversations or questions you can pose to them is the question of, um, you know, what are our top three priorities? And, in fact, I learned this some years ago from a consultant and just got a series of um, 3M little post-it notes and passed those around and you know, asked two, two questions. One was, you know, what are our top three priorities? And you write them down. And then at the end of it, you stand up and you put them up on the wall and you'd be amazed for a team and whether it be a management team or whether it be a project team you'd be amazed as the project leader or the ceo the variance in what people think is important um, and what the highest priorities are because they're thinking it through their lens with their perspective mm. um, and, and so and and if you're lucky as i was um, in one of my jobs where i was working in a maintenance facility and everyone knew they were there to do the maintenance of the submarine. So it was a highly aligned, again, a highly aligned organisation. said, what are we here to do? Number one was, you know, to deliver safe, certified submarines back to the Navy. Tick. Fantastic. The next question is then, how do we do that? What's the mental model? What's the process we use? Draw me a picture 
of how we do things and the outputs that we deliver. And, and again, if they pass the first question, it's, it's highly unlikely they will pass okay. the second yeah. question because, you know, people have these different mental models and paradigms about how they go about their work. But unless you can, again, get Lyman on that, it's very hard to, to do that reflective work, that reflective piece which says, hey, today we had a problem with doing this job and the part of the problem was training. So we need to be able to reach back and see where's the training impacted. We need to be able to look at the instructions the person was using, maybe the levels of supervision, maybe the tooling was incorrect. But unless you've got those feedback loops that go back and you've got a mental model that describes that in people's minds, um, it just sits as another job to do. And people then don't get that sense of, yeah, we had a problem, but we've now gone back and fixed that problem. And next time we go and do that job and other jobs similar to it, you know, we'll do it better. We'll capture that learning and we'll embed it in the way we do our work. And so that's probably the, the biggest reflection is that element around, you know, being able to look at what you've done um, and being able to get people who are highly aligned to understand what the goals of the organisation are, what the priorities are, and then more importantly, how do you go about doing that? How do we come together as a team? And that's particularly important with these days with the modern management structures, you have matrix organisations mm. where, you know, a project manager is no longer controlling all of his dedicated resources. He's pulling engineering resources from the engineering team. He's yeah. pulling in project management resources from the head of project management. His commercial forces are coming out of, resources are coming out of another area of the business. And he's got to manage those um, and manage the stakeholders who control those as well. I remember some years ago seeing some work by NASA which talked about them setting up a project management academy. And they said, um, interesting enough, it wasn't anything to do with the complexity of the projects. That had some really significantly bad outcomes with space shuttles and a few other landers, you know, not landing on, on, uh, on the planets yep. as they were supposed to. But um, their reflection was there was nothing wrong with their technical skills and there was nothing wrong with them pushing the technical barriers and boundaries that they were. Their challenges came around teaching, particularly in their case, a lot of engineers about the soft skills you need in order to run a successful project in this complex management environment. So things like the self-awareness, that reflection piece, the communications, conflict resolution were some of the core soft skills they identified that importantly they reflected weren't being taught anywhere else. So a big part of their focus was to focus on those areas and uh, upskill their project managers to go about their work in a slightly different way. Yeah, look, that's, you're preaching to the choir in that space because that's the areas that we, we work mm. at uh, Synergy IQ in is that sort of that behaviour or the human element of, of the business. And um, we see it on a day-to-day -day basis that, you know, there's this common theme amongst all corporate businesses that the technical or the most technical leaders get promoted to the management position or the executive position or whatever and we're starting to see a big shift in that we're starting to see more people leaders move into those roles people who can have those softer skills and you know we sat from day to day that's 50 percent of your job 50 percent the other 50 percent is technical the other you know half half is making sure that you've got the people on board, you've clearly communicated what is the outcome we're trying to achieve here 
and you're removing the bollards that, that get in their way to help them yeah. to reach their outcomes or help the business reach its outcomes. So it's ultimately, it's a big, big, big part. I want to um, dive into your decision to move from the Navy mm-hmm. to the corporate world. What triggered that for you? When did you decide, I've had enough? So I don't think there was any one particular incident that, that triggered it, but uh, I think with time, particularly when you finish your seagoing career, um, and I was extremely fortunate that, um, you know, I went in command, I was 34. Um, by the time I'd done two years there, three years overseas, another two years, you in around that 40-year um, age. Um, and so I think I'd done a job ashore. And at that sort of stage, there was pretty much, um, you know, I was slated to go overseas to Newport, Rhode Island, to uh, Naval War College over there, which would have been fantastic. But it was only for 18 months. Mm. I was going to come back. Who knows where I was going to go? It could have yeah. been Perth. Um, so there was a le- element of uncertainty that I wanted to sort of um, resolve. And also I, I didn't feel that excited about having gone to see most of my career about you know, necessarily going down into Canberra and doing all the work down there. Yeah. So um, it was a good time to then make a, um, a call to leave. So that was... Um, late 2007, mm-hmm. um, I'd love to say that, um, you know, I did a fair bit of work in the lead up to it, engaging with um, a recruitment specialist who was a good friend, his ex-Navy person, and he uh, took me through the whole process, what happens and the questions they ask and how you need to answer the questions and the research you've got to do, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I was all keyed up, ready to go, practised and worked it out. And then, of course, the day I resigned, I think I told one person and by 9 o'clock that night I had a job offer. Um, <laughs> so um, so really didn't, um, unfortunately, I didn't really go through that process by much. Um, and, um, and, and the opportunity I went for, which was a defence company, um, was predominantly because the person I knew um, who was running it at the time uh, got on well with, as well as um, they had quite a few other ex-defence People in there as well, people mm-hmm. I'd served with previously, I knew them. Yep. And so, so where was this, sorry? The... This was Talos in, in okay, Sydney. Yep. So it was a very safe environment for me mm. to go into and a very relatively familiar environment. Mm. Um, unfortunately, for some of the Talos people, it felt at times like a Navy old boys club. <laughs> but, um, but you had those connections. They knew what you knew, but more importantly, they knew what you didn't know. Mm. And so there was an opportunity there to fill in the holes. And it wasn't as if... It's hard to, the commercial side is hard to understand, but you just have to experience it. You have to see it. You have to soak it in and, you know, understand the lessons uh, before you move on. And I remember my, my first reflections of that year was um, we used to have a lot of management discussions about the car park and there's too many cars in the car park and there's all these problems and the staff are getting upset with it. And um, every two weeks we'd have our management meeting and this would be brought up and we're carpooling and we're paying for people to take public transport. We're doing all these things. And, and by the end of that year, we'd lost two major contracts and we didn't have a problem with the car park anymore because <laughs> we had to let a whole yeah, bunch of people right. go. That's the, and that's the first lesson about... You lose focus. Yeah, that first lesson about, you know, you've got to keep feeding the mm. organisation with work and if you don't, the opportunities dry up mm. and you suddenly have some very uh, challenging times ahead of you. So um, so there's some of the lessons you learnt pretty, uh, pretty, pretty quickly. But again, you go through them, you experience them, you learn them. Um, you learn them, thankfully, not because of your shortcomings, but you're just an observer. 
Um, mm. So they're uh, easy lessons to learn and ones that uh, don't cost you too much pain, despite the pain to the broader organisation, but um, gives you the opportunities to um, build up your knowledge. And so that was the great opportunity of going to that, that company at that time. You, I'm, I'm really interested in the transition from structure to potentially what is chaos in the, in the corporate environment. I'll use an example. A friend of mine, a very good friend, one of my best mates is a neurosurgeon, right? Um, comes, from, comes from work every single day after every being, everything in his life being so structured, you know, scalpel, it gets handed to him on a tray, literally, right? And he just goes from it, everything's in order, goes home to his three kids and it's just chaos. The corporate environment, the same sort of thing from that move to the um, t- from from the Navy to the corporate world where you could almost put down a, a command and it gets done or people, like you said, they're sitting on the edge of their seat ready to go within a minute. Mm. When you've moved into the corporate world, how did you deal with the time that it takes for things to happen and the red tape that it has to go through for decisions to get made? How did you manage to, to plough through that? Oh, look, I think a part of that is just the learnings you've got to take on. It's just acclimatising to a new new environment, a new situation. Um, I can understand your friend's dilemma. <laughs> I used to, you know, go home from work and have two two very young children, my wife, who sometimes, you know, is, is coping with the family for six months with me being away. Yeah. Um, I think one stage she tells the great story about how a youngest one who was probably about 18 months, two years at that stage, had managed to lock her out of the house when she went and saw the, the neighbour and she's sitting inside laughing at her. She's outside <laughs> there crying because she can't get into the house and yeah. they finally managed to break their way in. But, um, but some of those challenges, you know, and that, that nature of the, the way work is. But I think you just adapt to that relatively quickly. Again, you come out of a Navy environment. It doesn't mean that you are strictly defined by that. And as I said, some people, you know, certainly I have a more flexible um, or ability to adapt to the environment around me a lot uh, a lot readily than some. And so that wasn't really, to me, a, a huge issue. I think probably the thing which took a, a little bit of, or it was interesting reflection, is that when you come from an environment where you, um, you live it, you breathe it uh, for weeks, months on end, um, and, and, of course, the analogy in the corporate world would be you come to work on a Monday um, and you just stay. You sleep there that night. You mm. work till 9 or 10 o'clock at night. You sleep till 6 o'clock next morning. You wake up, pack up your little bed that you've slept on in your office, maybe have a shower if you're lucky, have something to eat. You roll through work for the day and mm. 10 o'clock next night. Now, no one would do that, but that's what you were doing in the Navy effectively. Um, but in the corporate world, you again, that paradigm is not there. And so I suppose that element around expectations of people and and certainly being sensitive, I think, and, and more aware, and certainly my current um, company, the issue of uh, the issue of the work-life balance, you know, that's fundamental to the way the company operates. That's mm-hmm. one of those kind of core um, elements of the business, the DNA that, you treat people with respect, you treat people like human beings, you treat people like you effectively want to be treated. There's a high level of trust in people and teams. There's less micromanagement of people. And through doing that, you will find that the best people, the ones who have a self, 
motivation and desire, that internal willingness to drive and make things happen, um, they will flourish in that type of environment. Some people will, will struggle. And I generally say that to people joining Saab, that if you've come here to be micromanaged or if you need someone to micromanage, you're in the wrong company mm. because that's not our style, mm. that's not the way we work. Um, you treat people um, like they're professionals, you treat people like they've, they've got work to do and you get them off. And the job of management then is to try and take those blockages out of the way from them, allow them to do the best work. And, and if you look at some of the incredible work that we do in Australia um, in a whole range of areas, but if I can reflect on the work here, um, you know, you're getting people who are doing really complex projects. Um, uh, those projects involved, you know, high technology um, and the ultimate use of that technology um, in many cases to, say, protect a ship or to allow a submarine to operate or to protect an army unit at a time of crisis. And that time of crisis is a missile or something being fired in and they've literally got to respond within seconds and they can't afford the software to lock up or mm. they can't afford for the system not to process fast enough to get the countermeasures assigned and deployed uh, within that short cycle time. So, you know, there's something that, that works in that. There's something that works in having really good people working in teams who just love the work that they do. Mm. I think there's a passion to it that, that comes through in the way that they engage with the work. And I think that's the great, you know, it's what I took from my career in the Navy was just the passion, the love for the work that I was doing. Um, and similarly, you see that in, in ver various areas. And I think that comes back to your comment earlier about younger people trying to make a decision. One of the hardest things is to try and understand what are they passionate about mm. um, and how do you translate that into a work environment? Um, and can you find that synergy where you are able to be able to do something you're extremely passionate about in the work environment and get someone to pay for it? If you can, then it's a really, you know, fantastic environment to be in. Yeah, spot on. So going on your point of, uh, you know, the work-life balance and, and some people really flourishing in that environment and not being micromanaged, my sources around the place, uh, they tell me that the culture here is brilliant mm. and since you become the CEO, it has really taken the next step of building a culture of, of um, trust, empowerment, innovation, as a real focus on people. Where do you think, when you came into the, the CEO role within Saab, was that your primary focus? Was that where you, you walked in and said, this is my legacy, this is what I want to build a culture of, mm. of innovation and a culture where people feel valued? So I didn't, before joining Saab, I really didn't have much of a close insight. I never worked closely with Saab. I knew it at distance. I knew the CEO at the time here. He was a classmate of mine back at uh, Defence Academy in 86, 87. So I had a relationship with him. I knew what he was, what he was like and how he operated. Um, but I, I, I would say that um, I, I'm not sure it's changed um, from the cultural perspective and some of the core values of um, respecting people and engaging with people um, and valuing people. Sometimes 
uh, even putting, uh, well and truly putting people above the business, the short-term objectives of the business. Um, that's been a part of the DNA for years and years. And it really draws back to the original DNA of when the Swedes set the place up 30-plus mm -hmm. years ago. Um, that's the way they operate. That's the culture of collaboration and consensus. Um, and, and, and certainly when, you know, I'm in this business and we're dealing with the parent back in, in Sweden, we've got enormous delegations down here. So there's not many times I have to seek approvals, et cetera, from them to do certain things. But in those times when you need to get decisions out of them, then, you know, it's important you understand their culture because their culture is very much about consensus. And you can't just walk into a meeting with a great idea and land it on the table and go, here's the idea, we're going to do this, this and this, and off we go. Which, going back to my Navy career, is kind of the way that, you know, it was done. <laughs> you, you could characterise many of the decisions being like that. Yep. Um, not all the time, but that occasionally happened and people would just assume that's the way it is and adapt and overcome and move on. Uh, in this environment, and certainly with the Swedish influence, that is imprinted on the DNA of the, of the company. Um, there is that sense of um, collaboration and consensus. So you've got to get people on board, not dissimilar to the Japanese, their work culture, which is one of having meetings, a series of meetings before the actual meeting, so that you know everyone going into the meeting knows what the key issues are, um, knows what's going to be discussed. Their views have been taken and integrated into the plan. And so you get into the meeting and it's very much a almost like play acting through this this event, but it's because you've done all the groundwork and preparation. Mm -hmm. and, and it just means when you go from that decision, which usually not always will go perfectly, but we usually go much smoothly, um, that you can go and execute much quicker because everyone's aligned and all the questions and all the doubts and decisions, they're able to get explored in a very safe environment um, before the actual decision itself. And, and what's more, you also tend to have very much more relationship-based um, focus in, in a business like this. So it's more about knowing the person and trusting the person um, rather than measuring the person and, and uh, you know, asking them for a strict reporting guidelines. Um, there's that building those relationships and, and that's an important part of it. It can be sometimes a little bit of a, a shortcoming or weakness uh, but done the right way and the right thing. I think it always puts the emphasis back on the individual to make sure they lift themselves mm. to, to the standard. Um, it's not dissimilar. You know, my very earliest days in the Navy, Naval College, and I said it was a tough, punishing first year there. It was hard. Um, you're really challenged. And uh, if on the rare occasion you failed to do something or you breached one of the rules um, inadvertently, even. Um, you were given a punishment. The punishment sometimes was pretty, um, pretty significant. Um, but the way in which it was communicated to you was, you know, you're an officer now and very soon you're going to be leading people. Um, if you can't look after yourself, if you can't manage yourself, if you can't control and discipline yourself, if you can't deliver results and be there reliably, how do you expect the people you lead to be able to do that? Mm. But it was done in a, a, a positive affirmation of lifting you to lift to that, that level. Um, I, I found interesting, you know, and again, without going to the inner service rivals or cultures, I found 
in when I went to Defence Academy in my second year, second and third year, the culture was different. The culture was, let's say, for example, you had a parade and you had to be there at 8 o'clock in the morning. In the Navy, you're either there at 8 o'clock in your uniform all ready to go or you're in trouble, mm. right? We found at Defence Academy what they did was, you know, for an 8 o'clock meeting they'd get everyone up at 6 o'clock in the morning and you'd be on the parade ground in your tracksuit pants so that physically they laid eyes on everyone and said, right, everyone's up, everyone's good, right, now off and have breakfast, then get in uniforms, we'll see you down there. And they kind of set up that thing that tried to prevent people from, from failing or fall, mm. falling short. And, of course, that's great. That works well in some environments. But, you know, it, it dilutes that personal accountability that you had. And, of course, when people then failed, not that I was in first year at that stage, but people failed in that Defence Academy, there was that, in those days, many years ago, that context of, oh, you failed, well, that's because you're a cadet and we don't expect much from you and so here's your, here's your punishment mm. or whatever. As I said, not that it happened or I saw it happen that often, yeah. but that was the, the difference in the way the message was passed across and the way the culture operated. What's that micromanagement stuff that you're talking about? Yeah, and absolutely. And spoon-feeding people. people yeah. And you hit half the target market or even quarter of the target market, right? Only say 25% of the people actually want to be spoon-fed. The other 75 mm. want to do it themselves. So, yep. you know, you, you've, uh, you can really fall on on your bum in the, in the wrong spot, in the wrong places there if you, yep. if you take that approach. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's just one of those cultures, the way the organisations operate, and that's why I tend to find the most interesting and exciting. And, and as I said, it's not me and it didn't start with me. It started many years before me. The culture was imprinted from the, the origins of the business and successive leaders have come in by and large because they've embodied or embraced that culture, and I'd suggest in my case, it's it's about embracing that culture as the way the business operates. Um, similarly, you know, it's it's not just me, but it's also the way that my my manager, you know, that I report up to in Sweden, interacts with me. Um, I remember one of my earlier conversations with him after about uh, three or so months in the job, and I said to him, "Geez, I'm still getting my arms around things. Been here for three months now." I'm, you know, there's an enormous amount to know. And he goes, oh, just remember, this is a marathon, not a sprint. Mm. And so in that simple phrase, um, you know, he gave permission effectively for me to take time. And also that element, don't put yourself under pressure. Just take your time. You'll get there. It's fine. And, and um, you know, if anything, you'll just redouble your efforts to make sure you don't let the person down. Yeah. So it does really put that emphasis back on the individual to lift themselves to be able to meet the standard that's expected across the organisation. And again, you do so recognising that sometimes there's going to be a percentage of people, a small number of people, who are going to struggle or are not going to be able to operate in that type of environment mm. and they're going, to, they're going to find it difficult. Yeah. How do you set standards for that high performance though, that, the high performance culture that you're looking for? Is there anything that you do in particular at Saab or...? How do you manage that? I think a lot of it's about, um, back to the earlier point about alignment, it's mm. being clear about our targets. So one of the things we spent a lot of time with after I arrived was just looking at our strategy. Um, and we had a sales strategy when I arrived, which was which was very effective, showed us where we're going. But 
um, I sort of enlarge that to a to a broader strategy that encompass things like people development, et cetera, and markets and what markets we're going to be in, what areas we're going to go into. So more away, more from just the understanding of what projects we were going to secure and win, but to look at what markets we need to be moving in. And a lot of that work had started well before I came, but it was a, a way of just clarifying it. So we've got our plan for 2030. Um, all the team knows what the targets are. We know in terms of portfolio diversification, what the size, respective size of our businesses that we're, we're looking for, um, how we're going to shape, how we're going to look at some of our challenges. We're heavily, uh, we've got an enormous amount of focus on maritime work here, particularly combat systems work. Mm. That's fantastic. It's long-term work that's been around and will go into the future, but you can't afford to be a one-trick pony. So for me, putting emphasis on developing our civil securities um, team here, which is doing um, an integration platform, a software integration platform that connects up large numbers of sensors. So uh, effectively, it's like building control rooms uh, in a whole range of applications. Yeah. So uh, they broke into that market um, about eight to 10 years ago. They developed a product here in Australia uh, that, um, that set a new standard for it because they applied what they learned in the defence space into a completely new domain mm. and built a product that wasn't there to, to address a market perceived market need. And, and so now we've done over 50 installations of that. Um, we're finishing off Sydney Opera House at the moment. We've done uh, the Clarence Correctional Facility in Grafton, New South Wales, the biggest correctional facility that's just been built. Um, we've done that. Um, we've done some work with a financial institution about connecting up all of their branches, ATMs and other infrastructure um, around Australia into one head end that will allow them to be able to observe across their entire network, every branch, every camera, every lock that you can control mm. from a central area if you so need. So it's taking those skills and putting those areas. And that's why that market and building that business is important because back to your earlier point about high performance, you get high performance out of people when they're, they're drawing. First, they've got clear targets. Secondly, they can draw across a wide range of experiences. Um, sometimes having super specialised people might help you solve today's problem, but it won't get you ready for tomorrow's problem. Mm. So for me, it's a healthy way of developing our engineering capability to be able to have people move across projects from defence projects, which are very detailed, strictly controlled, into civil projects where they've got to deliver a solution within weeks or months that mm. has to go into operation and say for a, a correctional space, a prison, um, you know, that's got to work 24-7, mm. you know, um, and you can't afford to have uh, any glitches in the software mm. or suddenly Absolutely. at midnight or something that all the doors unlocked. So I want to uh, unpack as well. So your strategy at the moment, it uh, talks about people, market performance, portfolio, sustainability, innovation, all the like. However, there is an approach to that's on your website, that's on the SAAB website that says innovation is a mission-critical leadership style. Can you unpack that for mm. me? Because innovation is this buzzword yeah. at the moment that uh, all businesses are trying to achieve. Yeah. You at SAAB and you and the team are especially innovative and, and, and almost dedicate, uh, well, it is definitely one part of your value system and value set. Can you unpack that, how it's a mission-critical leadership style? Yeah. What does that mean? So I think if you reflect back on innovation, um, 
probably interesting reflection, I mean, back to the DNA of, of the company and DNA, the way it operates. Think about Sweden, 10 million people um, in Europe, um, large proportion, 60-odd percent of their economy is geared towards exports. You've got some of the most well-known companies that are there. You know, obviously the, the Volvo's cars are sold to a Chinese company now, but trucks and other vehicles are still Swedish. Um, you've got, you know, large industrials like ABB with pumps and control systems and electronics. Um, you've got the Electroluxes across a wide range of areas, um, the Skypes, the Spotify's, H&M, Ikea's, that's from a country of 10 million people. Yeah, it's pretty And it's And pretty if you, you could name probably 10 or 15 globally recognised brands and people would know them and probably the surprise would be, oh, they Swedish as well, are they? <laughs> so part of that is in the culture of being export focused but also that understanding that you've got to keep innovating and growing and doing things differently. The magic, however, happens at the team level. And so you're really looking for team leaders, not just at the senior leadership position like myself, although we have responsibilities in the chain, but you are looking for those team leaders that are not just satisfied with doing something again, but are actually always looking for ways of doing it better or doing something new. And that's just a part of the, I think, the culture. I'll make no um, sort of claim to say that we are experts in, in innovation or experts in leadership in innovation by any means. It's tough um, and it is a tough grind sometimes to do it. I think you've got to have a catalyst to start with, something that drives you. Mm. So if you look at that civil security business I talked about earlier on, the main catalyst of that was some strategic assessment which looked at the defence sector and said in the you know, 2010, 2012 timeframe that it's going to be very hard to see how we maintain our workforce at the current levels given some of the challenges in defence funding. So they looked to where they'd apply those skill sets elsewhere. Um, and, and the classic story who uh, my predecessor tells at the time um, was brilliant because they effectively got shortlisted and won a contract to do a correctional facility. It turned out the solution they were looking to offer when they actually, you know, went into deep detail of it wasn't going to work for the solution. And so suddenly they're sitting there having been selected for a project and starting from a blank sheet. Mm. And that drove this massive cycle of innovation, engagement with the customer to really connect and understand how they operate. Now, that's something where it's forced upon you um, through, a, through a catalyst like that. Um, of course, the challenge is when you are doing well and things are moving along, um, particularly in some of our really long-term projects, how do you then stimulate that mm. innovation? And that's where I think it's got to start at the top. It's got to start with the long-term strategic plan which says here's where we are today, here's where we want to be in 2030. In order to get to 2030, we can't just keep doing the things we're doing today. Yep. So we're going to have to do things differently. And often that solution, that innovation, that change most often comes from within the business, mm. not the leadership. The, the leadership can point to things and it can talk about trends um, and we can look at areas um, and look at some of the strategic shifts. But that real innovation drive and translating that intent 
interaction really has to occur in the engine room of, mm. of the business. And so therefore, the critical element of when you talk about leadership, it's not my leadership, it's the leadership throughout the whole business yeah, that absolutely. needs to embrace that. Um, and, and we see that reflected in, it's interesting, we did some, uh, we do a global survey every year. Yep. And when you look at our results uh, from Australia, um, it, it assesses um, three areas. Uh, your manager, how well your manager is going. Yep. So that's an interesting, challenging time. Absolutely. It's not like, it's like a quasi 360, yeah. you know. Yep. Your manager, it assesses the team and it assesses the job or your task. Now, the highest area, one of the highest areas of positive responses from a survey the year before was around the manager. And the statement was along the lines of my manager models the right behaviour. Yeah. And you kind of, when you're starting at a point like that, and that's throughout the business, that's like team leads right down mm. doing software development um, or executing projects. When you start with that depth of engagement between the team leaders and the, the team members, then that gives you an enormous base and a great opportunity to leverage off. It's, it's pretty much then you just got to point in the direction take away the barriers if you can, try and provide some funding when it becomes available and, um, and allow the magic to happen. Mm. It's really hard, though, to create that from scratch. You, you couldn't go in. It would be extremely hard to go in and recreate that from scratch unless you had people around you who oh, were a similar it's, mindset. It is ridiculously oh. hard. And the, the statistics from, you know, the Gallup statistics, 85% of people leave a business because of the, the management, management yeah. right? So um, how do you maintain that do you is it part of the induction process is it when people come on board these are our expectations and we're going to hold you to account should you step outside of these expectations how do you manage that high performance from your leadership teams i think that some of those expectations and norms about how you operate um are self-evident from the first day you walk into the business mm. because it's a widespread belief across mm. the business of, of the way things are done. And so if you came into the business and assuming you got through the selection process for it and came in, um, you would really struggle and you'd see some just differences between what you think, how you'd approach a, a circumstance or situation um, as different to how the rest of the team respond. And maybe you can push through, maybe you've got a strong sense of character and you can push through, but you'd have to be pretty, um, pretty low EQ to kind of exist in that environment for mm. very long before you realise you've kind of got yourself to a yeah. place that's fundamentally different. At that point in time, you've got the choice of either jumping on board and, and yep. adapting or... It's probation. You, well, yeah, or it's going to be <laughs> difficult, right? Yeah, so, right. So, uh, and, and so that's the, the advantage that I have and where I find great comfort is in the fact that it's not me. In fact, sometimes I put out ideas and I get my team saying, Oh, you know, that's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. We need to make sure we do this, this, this before we do that. Yeah. Okay, let's go and do those things so we can achieve that. So people it's are always... putting the ego aside in that scenario, isn't it? And uh, look, and it's also respecting that, you know, people are much uh, more in tune to the people they lead Yeah. Um, because of relationships. Like when we had the COVID response and we had to... Uh, we quickly had to respond to that, so we then sort of... 48 hours we were kind of shifted from you know 400 odd people working here to 
to a core of about 100. And for us, the core business is our classified work that we do here. And so we didn't want people coming in with COVID compromising that so that that could continue. We got everyone out. Um, and a lot of decisions, I made the easiest decision, right, we're out of here, um, but we still need to protect the, the core business. Mm. And everyone just then went on and, and went about their work. But you had managers who at that stage engaging with their people said, um, you know, I know this person is going to struggle either being at home um, because, you know, he's, a, he's an interesting character and he's not going to do well in that environment or there are certain things there, so we need to bring him in. Mm. And likewise, we had people who should have been in at work doing their work here because it was classified work, essential work, and we had to then give them additional or give them different work to do so they could do that from home because they were going to struggle coming into, if you remember those early days, mm. it was quite difficult like bringing people into a work environment where any one of their co-workers could have come in with with COVID that yeah. that was a significant stress and so you've got managers who are very attuned to people within the teams that can actually accommodate those issues and get the best out of people and, and again that's the type of people who do well in this type of environment yeah and all environments, those who have yep. built those trusting relationships, it's a fundamental for any business or personal success, isn't it, really? Um, moving into uh, the federal budget has come out and there's a fair bit of, uh, a fair few funds going into the defence uh, industry. I, I know I'm probably going to get a diplomatic answer on this, so I'll ask it anyway. Where do you feel that Defence Australia is going and the cha what challenges do we face, you know, especially from the likes of China and that? Where do you feel our challenges fa uh, uh, lie in the next 10, 10 years or so? Yeah. Well, I think one of the, you know, COVID has been an extremely challenging environment for many. I think one of the learnings we can take from it and reflect on, as many have, is this element around... Um, self-sufficiency and sovereignty in Australia and what do we need to have um, in Australia um, to match with our increasingly challenging environment. And so I think that's one of the things that we're reflecting on. Interesting enough, Saab as a company started in 1937 in Sweden and it started in the lead-up to the Second World War where everyone in Europe um, was seeing what was going on. Hitler had been in power for a number of years and they could see all the countries building up their military capabilities. And uh, the overseas suppliers that Sweden relied on were suddenly working in their national interest, mm. not worried about exporting to some other country. So they learnt the lesson of the difficult way and set up a strategic capability to build aircraft um, in that time of need. Um, we're having that discussion in Australia now, which is around what do we need ourselves uh, in Australia to best manage uh, the type of circumstances that we reliably or realistically will be uh, confronted with in the future? Um, the region will continue to change. Um, the growth and rise of China is inevitable. Some would say the re-rise of China um, because they have for many, many hundreds of years been a major power. Mm. Um, so 
that's going to be an interesting dynamic. But it's not all about China. And I think the challenge is that if you focus on one entity or you focus on one lens, you miss a whole range of other yeah. elements and other challenges as well. So I think that's where we have to have a broader understanding about the changes that are going on, um, and not just from a defence lens, but a broader national security lens. And I'm really glad to hear a number of the strategic leaders now talking about this broader national security policy, which doesn't just cover how many bombs and bullets and tanks you've got. Um, that's one thing, but uh, more importantly, what about our economy? Mm. It's our economy and the health of our economy the vibrancy of our economy and our ability of our economy to ride through difficult times like this, difficult times where a major trading partner, for example, uh, decides to um, impact upon that trade um, and uh, cause us problems there. And I think that is one of the, the great gifts, if you could say, one of the few great gifts out of COVID and the, the challenging environment we've been through is this sharper focus on understanding what do we need to do in Australia. I think the sovereign piece, we need to be careful because often people will just jump to a very small, tight, defined solution. Oh, we need to build missiles here or we need to mm. do this here. Well, we need to do those things that best make sense. We can't do everything. We just don't have the scale. Yeah. So what are those few areas that we really need to focus on? What are those key capabilities, those key things we need in Australia to make sure that when we look ahead, we look where technology is, where is going, where the challenges in the environment is going, how can we best respond and how can we make sure we ride through that best? I think another element to it is going to be around um, partnerships and I think this is where the ability of Australia to understand its strengths and play to those strengths is going to be critical. And often, you know, in a strategy sense, yeah. people underestimate their strengths. Yeah because they're so innate to them that they think everyone thinks that way and acts that way. But I think in Australia that um, egalitarian way and manner, I think that openness uh, that we have and the values that we place on freedom, a freedom of, um, of thought, the ability to protest, the ability to do sometimes what some would, would classify as being crazy things, um, we should sometimes celebrate those things because there's a lot of people who fought and died to give us that opportunity mm. to do that. And they're the things that I think resonate across a vast range of cultures, um, particularly when it relates to the children and, and setting up an environment for uh, each country that the opportunities for their children and their children's children are better than what they have at the moment. If we can tap into that and understand that value of freedom and openness, uh, democracy and the importance of those democratic debate and discussion as, as sometimes as difficult as it is, um, then I think we're in a good position. If we try checkbook diplomacy, if we try strong-arming people, we are going to fail. Yeah, and to, um, you kind of danced around that question there, which I know you have to. But uh, it, it, for me, is there a real threat of, of actual war? Like I don't, in, in, my, in my own personal opinion, I don't believe like that is actually capable of happening. It's just not going to be something that 
um, you know, we've got the likes of the US, our big brothers, the US and the UK sort of backing us up, watching us over over us and all that sort of stuff. So, it, it, you know, with the push of a button, you can wipe out a whole country, right? So to me, that just doesn't make sense. So for me, uh, you know, the cyber security is areas that we need to really focus on and it, you know the 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 more softer areas the infiltration of our of our um, great nation is one that is under threat when people say just create more missiles is that realistic like is that so there are um, there are a range of responses we need i think importantly people talk about war and of course that's a very technical term um but probably a better, more accurate term is conflict. Yeah. And conflict, since the start of time, conflict has been going on uh, and will continue to go on. And if you look at, for example, um, you, know, you say there's wars, war's not going to happen, but look at conflict, look at uh, Syria, Palestine, look at yeah. Palestine at the moment, yeah. look at, um, even if you look at Crimea, yeah. the Russian annexation of Crimea, look at the destabilisation in eastern Ukraine. Like there's, there's those conflicts that have been brewing for decades and in many cases rarely a shot is fired if a shot's fired it's usually not reported on or it's reported on remotely but it's very hard for people to understand sometimes what's going on and what the fundamental causes are of those those issues and and so there will be tension in our region at times that tension will play out in conflict most often because of the people involved and particularly with the US presence um, and, and many of the actors in these environments are nuclear powers. So they've got to be very, conf um, very clear about how they wield their power and therefore it's the new domains. Mm. It's, you know, economic coercion has been around for a long time. Yep. Um, so too has um, cyber has been around for a long time. We're mm. talking about it more often now, but mm. we've seen we see actors. You know the the uh, U.S. pipeline uh, ransomware. Well, that's just people trying to extort money. Mm. Um, we know that the greater threats, albeit perhaps not as uh, not as numerous, but the greater threats come from that that security domain uh, because that can fundamentally you know, weaken the foundations of your uh, your society. So, and, and of course, we see often um, examples of um, uh, news being manipulated, facts being turned around. Obviously, Donald Trump coined the fake news and people have a certain view about that. But I <clears throat> clearly remember in one of my trips to Sweden, seeing how a local news story, which involved um, a couple of um, former African youths who were, uh, refugees in in Sweden, how this news story, which was covered on the local news, two years being, um, you know, taken to a police station after a minor altercation in a shopping mall, <clears throat> how that one story then gets turned into uh, major riots in a Swedish shopping mall mm. because it gets picked up by certain news services um, who are designed... Um, in this case, they trace it to a Russian news service that designed to then spin this story up and then push it up onto the international news wire and the internationals then pick it up and suddenly you're reading in it the New mm. York Times. Mm. Um, and they're the things we've got to be careful of in the future. So this idea of tension and conflict, um, 
you know, for many years, some of the leading strategists, I remember um, listening to an Israeli strategist in the late 90s as I was doing a, a staff course, and he looked out amongst a sea of uniforms um, and he said, I don't want to be seem disrespectful, but some of the next major conflicts aren't going to involve you and your pretty uniforms. They're going to be people who engage in asymmetric threats um, and asymmetric tactics to destabilise through avoiding conflict with you because they know if they try and take you on, they'll lose, mm. but they'll work around it. And sure enough, within three years of that, we had 9-11. Mm. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a scary thought at some of the creative ways that we can be targeted. Um, what are we, when I say we, us as civilians, what can we do to... In the meantime, like what, what what is expected of us while the powers to be are up the top making the decisions? Where do, where do we fall into all this? Oh, look, I think um, across society, I think we've got to look at some of those core elements of democracy, and and be very clear in our mind about what are some of the underpinning root causes that support that those fundamentals of democracy: education, mm. you know, critical thinking, some of the things that we talk about, but. Is so much harder to do these days given that for many, and particularly the youth, the news services which they rely upon are being shaped to feed their mm. very preconceived ideas that they have. Yeah. They only see the stories that they want to see, isn't it? Correct. Yeah, the, yeah, it's all shaped. So I think, you know, going forward, having that reflection and that understanding and training in people and accepting dissent at times, constructive dissent, that allows us to critique and understand where we are because unless we bring those broader voices, and not just here but, you know, some of the, the countries around us in our region, you know, have got some extremely difficult and challenging um, times ahead. Um, look at, you know, very near neighbour Indonesia and some of the challenges they're dealing with mm. with, with COVID uh, on top of a whole range of economic challenges. You look at places like Bali and tourism that's just been smashed. Um, and they don't have, like, unlike us, they don't have the massive export economy that we have to kind of lean back in, the iron ore that we have and some of those other resources we can lean back into. Um, so, so we need to look out for those, our neighbours, um, at times. And we need to make sure that they have strong uh, democratic processes in place and that the, the institutions that support those are, are supported through that. So we're coming to a close, but there is one question that's been on my mind throughout our whole chat and I was contemplating whether I ask it or not, but I'm going to throw it out there. How do you feel, Andy Keogh, how do you feel about defence in its own right mm -hmm. and its ability to cause harm to other human beings? How does that sit with you? Yeah. I think it sits quite comfortably with me, um, because I'm confident in the decision-making process and I'm confident in the checks and balances that we have in our society uh, that makes sure that that power is wielded in a way that is uh, just and measured. Um, I think we see examples um, as allegations in the Brereton Report, etc., of when individuals have gone off and misused that trust or being potentially in environments where 
things haven't turned out or gone or executed the way they were supposed to. But by and large, if you look at um, the military um, and the justification for the military, that being the defence of a national interest, the defence of the people, um, the foundation of that I absolutely agree with and um, are supportive of. And it's like any of these elements, you, you trust and you hope that you don't have to use it by the very fact, the fact that you have such an effective weapon and asset there normally underpins the fact that you won't need to use it mm. because others will respond accordingly and perhaps change their courses of actions based on the fact that they know what you've got. And, of course, that's always that... Um, it's a game of chess. Isn't it, really? Yeah, it is. And that's always that, uh, you know, going back to the submarine domain, that's always that issue with submarines is that you never know where they are. You never know where they'll pop up. Um, even my time in uh, when East Timor was happening, um, we just happened to sail into Darwin at the time and the wharf was just covered with cameras and, of course, all the stories of the submarine, where's it been and what's it been doing and has it been on spying missions and seeing what's going on in East Timor, all this conjecture. And no one uh, but for a few people knew exactly what we'd been uh, doing and where we'd been and what we'd done. And it's that ability, that unknown, that ability to respond in a way with a highly credible capability that underpins the some of the environment that we have today, the safety and security that we enjoy today in our environment. So, One last question before we get into quick questions, and it, it kind of touches on what, you know, you talk about the submarine and no one really knowing what what you guys were doing. The, the clearance um, and security measures that go into... Uh, the military defence, the whole piece, is is very obviously high and confidential, and um, you would have obviously a lot of, a lot of knowledge about what's going on in the world at the moment, uh, your previous missions that you've uh, deployed on, and and some of the the measures that you you had to deliver on. How do you manage? going home to your family, knowing that potentially there could be a threat to them. How do you manage that in yourself and obviously not being able to divulge anything from a security point of view? How do you deal with your own internal emotions in that space? I think it's a lot less for me, particularly because you tend to be quite compartmentalised in the way you're thinking and, and thought process. Um, and, and likewise, again, I left the military quite a while ago. so. You're away on a long deployment. You come back, you decompress, mm. you go back into the... Uh, and again, our geostrategic environment the last 20, 30, 40 years has been relatively, with, with few exceptions, relatively benign. Um, obviously, conflicts in the Middle East, et cetera, are notwithstanding. But... Um, but I, even I, from the, 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 you know, the weapons that you might yeah. be making here at Saab, you, there is knowledge of what yeah. is coming potentially... Yeah. Oh, there's knowledge of what happens when they get used, yeah. absolutely. Um, and, again, that comes back to that use of weapons and things in a just and appropriate manner. Mm. Um, I think the challenge um, I think the challenge these days for warfare, um, and there's some really great books out about uh, the pilots of those remotely piloted aircraft. So some of them are sitting in uh, Creech Air Force Base just north of Las Vegas. They're flying an eight-hour mission that 
aircraft they're flying is over in the Middle East somewhere flying around, potentially, you know, loosing off Hellfire missiles and they finish their eight-hour shift, they close the door, they hand over to someone else, drive a short distance home and they're the home just like that. Mm. There's no long flight, there's mm. no decompression. And doing that, that that's the nature of modern warfare and conflict that mm. I think is the most challenging element. And that's where, again, it comes around to the mental health side of it, um, picking people who are and training people who have got that, but also just watching for signs and making sure there's a support in place to look after people who are in those really difficult situations. It's, it's not dissimilar to what... Um, a different lens but not dissimilar to what our first responders deal with. Mm. Deal with people who go in bushfires, um, police yep. every every night of the week, yep. ambos. So um, I, I think having a an understanding of the ongoing trauma that they deal with in, in their environment, um, you know, and being able to support them is a critical thing. I think also, so from a military perspective, to me, it was never really that difficult um, mm. to reconcile in my head. You just manage with it, don't you? No other choices. Just deal with it. <laughs> yeah. So moving uh, to a close now, we often throw some quickfire questions at the end of uh, of the podcast. We're big readers and learners here at Synergy IQ and creating Synergy Podcast. Um, what are you reading right now? I'm reading a book about the um, startup of the Silicon Valley um, and the history of it okay. and how the innovation precinct worked at that time and it tracks the lives of about five key individuals in a number of areas, such as the universities and some of the companies that yeah. were there. Um, What's the book called? I forget the title of the okay. uh, Troublemakers. Troublemakers. Yeah, Troublemakers. Yeah. So um, it's good. Um, and, and it just, I mean, it shows those personal connections and networks that people have and the way these paths intersect at times um, and the incredible innovation precinct they were able to set up there mm. and of course you look at that and reflect on what we've got here in Adelaide and some of the things that are going on with lot 14 yep. space defense cyber etc um, you can all see the preconditions mm. there for some great opportunities in the future Silicon Valley is in a bit of trouble at the moment there's a lot of people fleeing mm. uh, purely because the unemployment has yep. gone through the roof there's people camping out in the streets and in front of people's homes and stuff mm. like that so uh, Fingers crossed we do it right here and don't go down that stage. Uh, a self-development book, if you were to say that, going back to that young teenager coming to you for a career advice, do I join, <clears throat> do I join the Navy or not? Um, what's one book that you would recommend to someone who's growing in their career from a self-development point of view? Um, or one that's held you in good stead over the years? Uh, good to Great was probably one of those ones mm. that talked to, you know, it's a long... Yes, quite old book now. The Jim Collins. Yeah, yeah, Jim Collins. So it kind of just connects to that whole idea. And, of course, that's often, you know, when you go into some of these businesses, of course, he looks at some of the culture and the core and why certain companies went really well and some companies who were great companies kind of fell off the rails Mm. and a lot of it is set around the cultural piece. Um, I think that's probably one of those from a business management perspective and thinking strategically about how you take organisations and, and let's face it, you know, when a company is going to go off the cliff and it's got some really, you know, challenging, um, in, you know, environments in, whether it's going to bankrupts, et cetera, uh, or whether you're in a startup, the culture is kind of quite 
predetermined to. You have to make decisions. You have to make things happen in both those instances. But most of us won't be in those circumstances. Most of us will be in a circumstance of taking an organisation that's going good mm. and trying to make it better than what it is. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a brilliant book. Do you listen to any other podcasts? No. I don't listen to many podcasts, no. actually. Not many at all. No. Very, okay. very limited. There's some good ones out there. Uh, if you had to pick someone that you admire or look up to, who would that be? There's a lot of people there. Mm. Um, one in particular. First one that comes to your mind. I think, um, yeah, who would be? Oh, it's a tough one. That's a tough one. Mm. Yeah, I have to do some more thinking about that mm. one. There's a lot of people out there that you just sort of take little vignettes away that yeah, do, do things and, and the inspiration, I suppose, that comes with with seeing those. Okay, so let's. I'll rephrase it. What about a leader? There's a leader in, in business that's doing some good things and you go, you know what, I like that. Let's do none of the Sweden examples. Oh, well, I think, you know, there's a, there's a few people over in, in Sweden who I deal with, mm. you know, who are incredible leaders. Um, you know, if I take someone who's at, a, at an Uber um, high level, you know, super high level, um, someone who, you know, I have limited engagement or involvement with but, um, but has a way of operating that's, that's uh, really interesting is um, the chairman of Saab is Marcus Wallenberg because, um, you know, it was his great, 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 great grandfather that, kind of started the investment um, that yep. eventually came in 1937. It was his, great father, his grandfather, I believe, who started Saab. And so there's this dynasty, there's this, there's this sense that um, this is not just about the next quarter's earnings, this is not just about here today, but there's this overall drive to see the strategic future and to be planning for the next... 50 to 100 years ahead of what Saab is going to be in that time frame. And, and that's incredible when you, you think about that. And I think there's it throws to me, again, back to some of those philosophies I talked about with, with um, the way you motivate people, it throws to me this kind of challenge, which is um, if I do well here or if I, if I do poorly here, I'm not, I'm not, it's not about money. You know, there's this part of this story, this narrative, this family dynasty that you're a part of, yeah. albeit a very small part. Um, but there's more to it, and and the values that come from that, the relationship that comes from that, and the importance of actually being trusted as a business and as individuals comes through. Because if you're going to be in business that long, and particularly in you know very um, tight areas like defence, you know, you've really got to have trusted relationships and mm. partnerships and you can't afford to, to compromise them. I love it. Bit of a quirky one. If you had access to a time machine, you could travel up and back. So return trip, you could go either forward or back in time. Where would you go? It's tough because I think, you know, the, we're, we're spoilt for choice mm. in Australia. You know, particularly the, the COVID thing has just reminded us of some of the incredible environment, the environment we grew up. Yeah. I actually, I actually don't know if I'd go forward. Maybe I'd go back and I'd, I'd, 
buy that house or not buy that house <laughs> or buy that car or not buy that car. Get but, the almanac, is it? <laughs> yeah, but I don't, I don't think I'd fundamentally change. I think, you know, where we are today, where, you know, I was extremely fortunate in my career to do some really fun, exciting, exhilarating things. I wouldn't want to change that. Um, looking forward, I think I tend to, by nature, look forward um, too much, uh, if anything, trying to look and see, plan for the future. Go forward and see if you can get your predictions right. Yeah, but you don't. <laughs> but you don't therefore enjoy the current. Yeah, so correct. I think you know, for me, it's about really enjoying where we are at the moment, where I am at the moment, where the business is at the moment. Um, lots of challenges ahead. Lots behind. Um, I suppose if I had to go forward, I'd love to go forward to uh, twenty thirty to see our what this place looks like then, um, to see the extra investments, to see the national business, to see that we've been successful. Um, I'm sure we will be, uh, but it always be nice just to duck ahead and have a yeah. look and see what it looks like because I'm see, sure it'll be... If you didn't, where you went wrong and what you can do. Yeah, that's right. I'm sure there'll be some <laughs> reflection I can take back to the present day. If you had one superhero power, what would you choose? If you could, Sorry, if you could choose one superhero power, what would you choose? Uh, reading people's minds that would be uh, that yeah. would be a good way um, just you know and sometimes not too much detail yeah I was going to say I have enough trouble reading my own yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah so sometimes I think just being able to read and sense um, people and understand not what they're saying but what is resonating within mm. them what is truly how they truly considering or looking or assessing something i think that would be uh would would give you a fascinating insight so you can yeah. shape that because that's that power of communication isn't yeah it? not just to pass a message but have that deep understanding that you connect to a person as cliched as that is um and they truly deeply understand what you're trying to do and that's always something that's an incredibly difficult challenge Absolutely. Beautiful. Thank you very much for your Pleasure. time today, Andy. It's been absolutely amazing having you and learning a little bit more about your journey and your thoughts around the business world and the defence industry. So thank you for joining us. If people wanted to get in contact with you, where could they find you? LinkedIn with 3,000 of my best friends. Yeah, so LinkedIn is probably the best way. Not that you'll respond. Do you want to be contacted? <laughs> Whether you respond or not is the other issue. So thank you very much again for your time. Uh, yeah, it's been brilliant. Much, much appreciated. Pleasure. Thanks, Thanks guys. See you guys. Thanks. Thank you once again for joining us here at Creating Synergy. It's been great spending this time with you. Please jump on to the Synergy IQ Facebook and LinkedIn page where the discussion continues after the show. Join our mailing list so you'll know what's happening next at synergyiq.com.au. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you really enjoyed it, please share it with your friends.